We turn now in the scriptures to the epistle of Paul to the Galatians. We're going to read from Galatians 1 verse 6 down to the end of the 10th verse of chapter 2. So Galatians 1 verse 6 down to the end of the 10th verse of chapter 2. Galatians 1 then and verse 6 and the word of God reads as follows. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching a faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, 
Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Amen. Well, let's just bow again in a moment's prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we were reminded in that psalm that we just sung how in a world full of lies we find the truth in your word. Lord, we come to your word now. Lord, we pray that you would speak truth to us by your spirit. May all that is said be what is right, be what is true. Feed us from your word, we pray. Be pleased to draw near to us and apply your word to us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I remember speaking to a Muslim a number of years back about Christianity. And I remember the response that I, that I got back from her. That Christianity, or what's called Christianity today, is really more the teachings of Paul than the teachings of Jesus. And there was another gentleman who was a, I suppose a nominal Christian, you'd say. And the sneer of agreement that came from him indicated that it isn't only Muslims that have this idea. Well, in the passage before us this morning, we come to a a point where Paul actually specifically addresses this issue. We have a passage which is a defense against those who would suggest that Paul's gospel is somehow defective. Somehow it's not a representation of the teachings of Jesus or of the original apostles. Paul's gospel was one of free grace. When he'd come to the Galatians, he hadn't laid upon them any works that they needed to do in order to be saved. Rather, they were to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who had died on the cross in their place if they would trust in him. And if they did that, then they would be forgiven. It wasn't of works of righteousness which they had done, but based on Jesus' death on the cross. But then, sometime later, after Paul had first preached in Galatia, A controversy arose in the church regarding circumcision. Did Gentile converts, like the Galatians, need to be circumcised and keep the wider Jewish ceremonial law, sacrifices, all this kind of thing, um, avoiding certain foods, did they need to keep that if they were to be saved? But Paul's response is to reject that idea and to maintain his original gospel. That salvation is not of works of the law, but of grace. And in the epistle to the Galatians, he lays out his case for that. And here, right at the start, he addresses this claim that his gospel, his gospel of free grace, is inferior, defective. That it's not the original gospel. It's not an authentic gospel. And I want us to focus on that as we look at this passage this morning. And we're going to look at it under three headings. Three things which characterize Paul's gospel and should encourage us in receiving his gospel and receiving it not only as Paul's gospel, though Paul does sometimes refer to it as that, but receiving it also as Christ's gospel. 
Now we're going to look at three things. We're saved through faith aside from works by this gospel. And this gospel is a Christ-obtained gospel. Secondly, it's an apostle-approved gospel. And then thirdly, it's the one and only gospel. Well, first of all, then the first characteristic of Paul's gospel, which we see from this passage, is that it is a Christ-obtained gospel. That's the first argument that Paul puts forward, that his gospel was received directly from Christ. We see it, in fact, even from the very first verse. We didn't actually read this in what we read, because it's not going to be our focus. But the very first verse, what does Paul say of Galatians? Paul, an apostle, what does he say? Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. He then underlines that point further in verse 11 what did he say for I would have you know brothers that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel for I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ and he underlines that point a little bit later on by noting that when he first began preaching because he had this authority from Christ He didn't seek approval from any man. He says that. Look at verse 16. Second half of verse 16. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. (coughs) But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. The fundamental point that Paul is making here is that his gospel was from Christ. Paul's apostleship was from Christ As we saw in verse 1, his message and his sending were from Christ. And therefore, when Paul preached, he spoke with Christ's authority. And his message, on that basis, must be accepted as the authentic gospel. Now, now we'll come in a moment to some of the other historical evidence that Paul brings forward. But let's simply underline this point first. Paul's gospel... The gospel of free grace through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ received by faith. That gospel is of heavenly origin. Now there are certain books, if you read certain books on on the theology and the thinking of Paul, you may come across them where it sounds as if Paul, or it's presented as if Paul almost deduced his gospel. He realized that that the law couldn't save on its own and something else was needed and and he came up with this idea that it had to be through faith. Now, I'm not trying to deny there's an element of truth in the idea that Paul was on a, 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 had some kind of journey and there were moments of realisation. I'm not trying to deny that. But that must never be taken to exclude the fact that Paul and his gospel had heavenly authority. That's what Paul says here. He received it by revelation of Jesus Christ. What Paul was proclaiming was not just his reasoning was not just this good idea that he'd had. Oh, well, it would be great, wouldn't it, if we could be saved by faith. It wasn't just that. No, this was something which he had on the authority of Jesus Christ himself. He knew it to be true because he'd received it from Jesus Christ. Now, we recognize the difference, don't we, between somebody speaking with an authoritative knowledge and somebody who's speaking from educated deduction. Um, in the world of football, 
There are, there are transfer windows when the, fo- the football clubs can sign players certain times of the year. And we're actually in one of those transfer windows at the moment. The, the month of January is a, is a transfer window for the Premier League. Uh, and, but it's only in that period that clubs can, can buy and sell players. But it's important that during this period that fans don't get carried away by all of the gossip that happens. Because particularly with the advent of things like, like Facebook, where websites sort of get money based on the number of clicks that they get and so on. If you get the, uh, just the tiniest bit of a hint of a, of a rumour, and somebody will write an article on uh, linking um, this player with this club, and, and particularly with one of the supposedly big clubs, they're going to sign almost everybody if you read every article that you come across on the internet. Ultimately, the only thing that matters is when the club officially announces if it's going to buy a player or it isn't. The rest is all just gossip. It may or it may not be true. Even if it's from a source that you would think probably has a good idea, is in the know. There's still no guarantee. And the most seasoned football supporters recognise that. They know that going out to the, to, the, to the store and getting a new football shirt with the, the name of the, the latest player who's been rumoured to be, to be signed on the back of it. They know that would be premature until the club has officially announced who's going to be signed. <coughs> and here, Paul is saying that his gospel is the official announcement. It isn't just the well-informed insider. It isn't just somebody in the know. No, this, says Paul, is from Christ. It's the official announcement. Now, at this stage in his epistle, Paul hasn't really brought out what the issues that are going on in Galatia are. We we did allude to them briefly a little bit earlier. But the Galatians who are reading this know what's going on. They know that there are people who've been coming in, who've been trying to foist rules upon them. Who are saying, no, Paul said you could be saved, but no, you need to be circumcised. You need to stop, stop eating this kind of food and start eating other kinds of food. <coughs> and they knew also that that was not the gospel which Paul had announced to them when he had first preached to them. They knew that what he had said was, no, if you will trust in Christ, you can be saved. That he hadn't put any other qualifications of things that you needed to do. And so when people come saying in in contradiction to the gospel which Paul had received from Christ that the Galatians need to do extra things to be right with God. Paul dismisses it. This was not the gospel which he had on authority from Christ himself. His gospel was aside from any works. Aside from the Jewish law. Yes, they were to to turn from sin and live righteously, but salvation is by grace through faith. And ultimately, the message is still the same today. That if you will repent of sin, if you will turn from it and trust in Christ, then you will be saved. You don't need to do a series of works. You simply need to turn to Christ, to trust in Him. Trust in the death which He died on the cross in your place if you'll trust in Him. That is the only qualification. Will you believe that this morning? Perhaps you do have your doubts. Perhaps you think that that, something else 
could be needed. Maybe for you it's, you feel like you need to make amends for something. You need to do some sort of penance to make up for something you've done in the past. Well, no, will you hear Paul's message? Which he preached, he says, with the authority of Christ himself. And will you believe it? Will you embrace it? Will you recognize the heavenly authority of Paul in his message this morning? Perhaps you're not a Christian. But will you believe this message? Will you believe that this isn't just Paul's opinion? Look at the change we have in Paul. Paul points to that in the passage you read, doesn't he? Previously, Paul had persecuted Christians. (coughs) He'd sought to destroy the church of Christ. Verse 13, what does he say? For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. What was it that caused this complete change in Paul? Well, it was a revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ appeared to him on the Damascus Road. Paul saw him and his whole life changed. So that now, verse 23, he who used to persecute the church is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. He realized that Paul saw Christ, that he received his gospel from him. And when you come and believe that gospel, come and believe that you will be forgiven if you will repent and turn from sin to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now perhaps this morning you are a Christian. But perhaps you also have fallen back into some kind of dependence on works. Now for you it probably isn't. You probably don't think you need to be circumcised. You probably don't think you need to stop eating pork and this kind of thing. But maybe there's something else in addition to Christ upon which you're relying. Or will you let it go? You depend rather on Christ and him alone by faith. Well, that's the first thing. Paul's gospel is a Christ-obtained gospel. But not only is it that, our second point, it's also an apostle-approved gospel. Because, you know, maybe this morning you're actually still a little bit sceptical. Maybe part of you is still, still has some questions Maybe you, you have the not unreasonable objection. Well, you know, you say, I can't just base this all on the testimony of one man, on Paul. What, what if Paul imagined this revelation of Jesus Christ? I remember seeing somebody actually arguing along basically those lines. It was somebody who was arguing in favor of, of Judaism and he dismissed Christianity as, being, as beginning with one man, with Paul. One man's revelation, which couldn't be verified by anyone else. Well, there's loads of things we could say in response to that. What about all the other apostles who saw Christ risen from the dead? And, but that's, I want us to restrict ourselves to what Paul's saying here this morning. He comes with his next piece of evidence in support of his gospel. Something which shows how untrue this idea that this all started with Paul is. And that is... That this gospel that Paul preached was approved by the very people who had actually lived with and known Jesus during his earthly ministry. Paul builds the argument. The first thing he notes, and this is just kind of maybe the, the, the first little hint of this. The first thing he notes is that 
initially the churches of Judea didn't, didn't know him personally. He, he'd met Peter and James, he says, uh, the, James the brother of Jesus, for 15 days, verses 18 to 19. But most of the other Christians, they didn't know him. Verse 22 of chapter 1. But yet, even then, just hearing about him, hearing about the fact that this one who had formerly persecuted the church was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, they glorified God in Paul. We read verse 24. They glorified God based on what Paul was doing through Paul. And here's the point. This was in Judea. This was in the the kind of the center of where this idea had arisen that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul's saying, when I first started preaching the gospel, it wasn't controversial. They knew what I was doing and they rejoiced. Well, that's the first point he makes. Little hint, maybe. No concerns raised at that point. But then Paul gets even more specific. And and this brings us into chapter 2 now. After Paul had first had that that brief journey for for 15 days to to Jerusalem, 14 years later, Paul went up to Jerusalem again. This time with Barnabas and Titus. We read about that in chapter 2, verse verse 1 there. And this is probably to be linked to the events of Acts 11, where there was a, a famine and Paul and Barnabas went with, with aid up to Jerusalem. And it would appear that Paul uh, used this visit to also specifically discuss the gospel that he had been preaching among the Gentiles. Seems likely that this was probably discussed in that first meeting with Peter and James, but on this occasion, to sort of more specifically make sure uh, that there weren't any issues, there weren't any problems, he discusses this matter specifically. And he meets privately, we read, with those who seemed influential. In verse 2 there, I went up because of a revelation, he says. Chapter 2, verse 2. And set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now these ones who seemed influential, that is as a minimum, uh, based on verse 9, uh, Peter and John, the apostles, and James, the brother of Jesus. But they, we read, verse 6, added nothing to Paul's gospel. Look at verse 6. And from them, from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, what does he say? Added nothing to me. What do they do instead? Verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Nothing was added to Paul and his message. Nothing else laid upon him. No mention of, well, really, you you need to kind of be trying to get them to be circumcised. You you need to, to get them to stop eating bacon. Nothing like that. Only verse 10. They said that he ought to remember the poor, something Paul says he was already doing. 
In fact, far from requiring circumcision, Paul had actually taken Titus with him, we read in verse 3. And he was not required to be circumcised. As a Gentile convert, even when he goes to Jerusalem, he's received as a brother by the apostles. No mention of circumcision at that point. (coughs) This then is Paul's second evidence. That his message was supported by those who had known and been eyewitnesses to the earthly life and teaching of the Lord Jesus. Jesus' own brother James and the apostles, Peter and John, perhaps the, the, the apostles who were closest to Jesus. These received Titus as a brother without circumcision. They added their blessing to what Paul already knew. That his ministry was approved by Christ and was the authentic gospel. Thus we have a further point here. The gospel Paul preached, that gospel of justification by faith alone, that gospel that all we need to do in order to be saved is to receive and rest in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for our sake. That gospel was not only by divine revelation to Paul, but it was supported and known by those who had seen and known Jesus and been eyewitnesses to Jesus' whole earthly ministry. And this undermines entirely the objections of Paul's opponents. This idea that Paul was an eccentric, that he was sort of spreading a gospel that was out of step with the wider church. It also undermines that objection that we heard about from some still today, that we heard about right at the beginning, that Paul founded Christianity, and the Christian practices and beliefs today do not resemble the earliest Christian practices and beliefs. Rather, we find here that Paul's gospel was supported by the apostles, and it's not just even Paul's own words. (laughs) We find that also in that we find the same gospel in the other New Testament writers. We find it in the, if we read Luke's careful historical account in Acts, where we, treat, where we trace the, the preaching of the gospel from the earliest apostles following Jesus as, after his ascension, through to the same message being preached by Paul to the Gentiles. We see the, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, the first General Assembly, if you like, to give it a kind of Presbyterian term. It probably happened not long after Paul wrote this epistle, during which the gathered apostles and elders of the church set forth a position that circumcision and the Jewish law do not need to be placed upon the Gentiles. Now this is the gospel of the church from the earliest times. Are you aware of that? If you're not a Christian today and you've heard these suggestions that that Paul founded Christianity. That just one man, it was his idea. Will you hear the truth this morning? That the message of Christianity is the united message of the eyewitnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Paul, but also the other apostles. And others still who heard and saw Jesus and indeed saw him raised from the dead. Let me ask you, will you strengthen your confidence in this truth 
this morning. That's Paul's intention here. That these Galatians, you know, they're perhaps unsure about things. Well, can we really rely on Paul? Is circumcision re- required? You know, I, I don't want to risk it, you know, if I need it. Can you imagine the doubts in their minds? But Paul demolishes that. No, he says. There's never been any question about this. These people who come in are false brothers. They're liars. Will you heed that? Perhaps you today, you're also unsure. Unsure about your own salvation. Worried that this seemingly too simple, too straightforward gospel, that all I need to do is trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who's died in my place. Maybe you worry that it's just, it can't be that easy. Something else is needed. I need to do something else. I need to make amends for what I've done in the past. I need to somehow sort of build, do some sort of good works that will somehow please and merit favour with God. If that's your thinking here today, will you turn from that to the gospel in its apostolic purity and simplicity? This Christ-obtained, apostle-approved gospel. That if you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and his, di- and his death for your sins, if you'll trust in him, then God will declare you righteous based on what Christ has done in your place. And this apostolic witness to it does add strength, doesn't it? You know, sometimes we, we come across things that, that do seem too good to be true, don't we? A deal that just seems too cheap, just, or just offers too much. And certainly for me, you know, if somebody rings me up and says, oh, you know, there's this thing that we need to offer, or I see a, an advert for something, then, well, the first thing that I do is I go and have a look online. I try and find some sort of support that this offer that's being made to me is authentic. I'm looking for, for corroboration, substantiation, that I'm not being conned in what's being offered to me. And that's what Paul is offering here. He was confident his message was true. He had received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. But he offers his Galatian readers and hearers something more, even more than that. Look, he says, it's not, don't just take my word for it. This was always the position. This was agreed upon by the earliest followers of Jesus, he says. Will you take reassurance from that as you turn to Christ? Don't worry about other things. Will you simply hear and receive this ancient, pure and simple gospel? That if you will turn to Christ from sin and trust in him, then it is that faith in him that is all that is required. Christ has done all other things. His death on the cross in your place is all that God requires. He doesn't require you to merit favour somehow. All he requires is that you rest in what Christ has done in your behalf, if you will, trust in him. Well, we've had our first two points. Paul's gospel was a Christ-obtained gospel. It was an apostle-approved gospel. But now, thirdly, and finally, it's also the one and only gospel. It is not the case that Paul's gospel just sort of simply works. You know, it's, it's one of the options. Paul isn't saying, look, you know, yeah, I know that some of the, these kind of other teachers are offering another option, but trust me, my one works. It's, 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 it's an authentic one. That isn't what he's saying. He isn't even saying, yeah, the other options, different options, but mine's the best. 
No. What Paul is saying is all of the Gospels are in fact not the Gospel at all. Look at what he says in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. And then what does he say? Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Look at that in verse 7. He, when he says they've turned to another gospel, he, he's kind of, he suddenly gets worried that maybe, they've, maybe they'll think that he's saying that this is actually another gospel. He says, no, not that there is another one. There's only one gospel. And he doesn't stop there. Look at the strong language he uses in verse 8. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be cursed, let him be anathema, let him be devoted to judgment. Strong language that Paul is using here. There is no other gospel. There is no other way. In fact, contrary to it being a gospel that is good news, it is in fact a form of slavery what's being preached, says Paul. Look at verse 4. In the preceding verse to to verse 4, Paul has has just been pointing to the fact that even when Titus came to Jerusalem, he wasn't required to be circumcised. But then he comes to verse 4. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. This issue has only arisen, says Paul, against the original practice, which is shown by Titus, that he went to Jerusalem and no one was bothered by the fact he wasn't circumcised. No, what's happened here, he says, has only arisen because of false brothers. False brothers, people who claim the name of brother, but they're not really a brother. Who've slipped in to spy out the liberty which we have in Christ, that they may bring us into bondage. Could be that he's referring to something that maybe happened when Titus was in in Jerusalem, but more likely he's just referring to the whole situation. These false teachers who have now arisen and who are infecting the Galatian church. But Paul says, no, they're... They're trying to bring you into bondage. They've come to spy out your liberty. They've, they've heard that, that you're doing things, or, or maybe more specifically that you're, that you're not doing certain things that the Mosaic law requires. And, and unable to mind their own business, they've come to spy out the land that they might bind you, says Paul. And they're false. They're lying brothers. Now the issue at hand was, was circumcision and, and no doubt the wider Mosaic ceremonial laws, food laws and this kind of thing but the application is wider Paul's message was trust in the Lord Jesus Christ rest in him and in his death and you'll be saved justification by faith alone and anything added to that must be rejected and Paul uses the idea of slavery doesn't he? Slavery, a slave works out of necessity with no hope of reward <laughs> and it may actually seem Surprising that Paul uses this language of these false brothers because uh, presumably they, these false brothers believed 
that there was a reward by following what they were saying, that, that if the um, Galatian believers were circumcised, if they followed the Mosaic law, that there would be a reward at the end of it by that route. No doubt, at least in the, the conscious mind of these false brothers who've come in, they would have been, they would not in any sense have seen themselves as trying to bring the Galatians into bondage. However, to think in such a way is, I think, to miss the point that Paul's trying to make. This is a false gospel, says Paul. Whatever they think, what they think about it isn't relevant. Paul's is the true gospel. And to listen to any other gospel, to try to come to God by any other means, is bondage. Because there is no hope of salvation by that way. To seek salvation by works, in fact by anything other than resting in what Christ has done, is in fact a full prey to the most miserable bondage. Now I'm sure that, that many of you here, maybe even all of you, pay into some sort of pension scheme. But imagine if, um, if you retired only to find out that, that this pension scheme you've been paying into for years was fraudulent. You'd been kind of slaving away, expecting that a retirement and income would be available to you, only to find that the whole thing has been a scam. This company, which maybe has been kind of pressing you for kind of higher payments, in the promise that, oh, you'll be a bit more comfortable if you can put an extra £100 a month in, or whatever it is. That company has ceased to exist. The money has disappeared. It's gone into some offshore account somewhere and nobody can find it. Beyond your reach. And you realise suddenly that all of those years of sacrificially paying into this fund was bondage. You weren't really investing in anything except these, these kind of con merchants' holiday home. It was bondage. And so it will be if we seek any other form of salvation. We won't be under bondage to Christ. His burden, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. No, you're under bondage to a lie. You're under bondage to something which holds no hope. And which, if trusted in at the expense of Christ, will ultimately result in your ruin and destruction. Where are you on this this morning? Now, the issue here at hand was circumcision. But anything that comes in the way of this simple gospel proclamation that all you need to do is rest in Christ and His work, anything that comes in the way of that is part of the problem here. Is your idea that you need to be as, as good as you can, that you can somehow <coughs> work your way to heaven, that you need to afflict yourself, that you need to do this, that, or the other, anything like that, it's bondage. It cannot save. You're just trying to do something that's futile. It's only faith in Christ. Now maybe, and this can happen a bit more subtly, you know, it's, it's possible to take things that are good rules, good guidelines, if you like, and and make them into a form of bondage. You know, what, what, what's Bible reading for you? Is it something that you, you rejoice to do? Knowing that you are receiving God's word. That God has deigned to communicate with you in human language. And you rejoice in that. Is it something that maybe you've even determined to do? Even on the days when, 
where, where perhaps you don't, you, don't, you don't really feel like you want to read your Bible. You, you, you've determined that I'm still going to do it because I know that there is by grace a blessing in it. Well, if that's you, then that's great. But it can become a type of bondage if, you, if, in, if instead you view it as some kind of work that you need to do to placate God. Some sort of thing that God requires of you and, and it's the most important thing is just going through these motions otherwise God's going to be angry with you. That's a type of works salvation. That's trying to somehow gain favour or merit with, some, with, with God over something that can never gain his favour or merit. Where are you on that? Now, what, what, what perverse creatures we are that we take something which is a gift from God that we're to receive and our hearts can Turn it into some sort of thing that God needs from us. Oh no, it's a gift from God, the Bible. God doesn't require, it doesn't, it doesn't gain, give anything to, to God, if you like. He, God's not, doesn't somehow gain, gain something by us um, reading it and it's some sort of work that somehow... Uh, no, there's nothing like that. How do you use the Lord's Day? Again, it's a time when God invites us to, to draw near to Him, to rest in Him, to worship Him, to meditate Him, to, to turn from the things of this world or for you. Has it maybe just become a, a day when you just you try and police what you and other people are doing? God just hardly comes into it even. It's what we can be like. By nature we have this kind of works idea. That somehow we need to Take what God has given to us as a gift for our good and turn it into something which is a, some sort of way of gaining merit and favour with God. You could go on and on with different points. Maybe for you it's something different, but you see the point. Are you taking something which God has gifted to you and are you turning it into something which is a, some kind of way of twisting God's arm, gaining his favour? Or maybe you're more like these false brothers here and you're trying to bring others into bondage. You know, there can be a spirit, can't there, of trying to just ensure outward, outward conformity with your idea of what a Christian should be. You're trying to twist other people's arms into it. I think as particularly say this to any parents here this morning. That we don't want to teach our children, do we, that, that being a Christian is about just conforming to a set of outward norms. That isn't what being a Christian is. Being a Christian, as you said, is receiving this gospel. Now, that's not to say that we don't teach them what righteousness is. That we don't teach them that to follow sin is death, ultimately. And righteousness is life. It's not to say we don't teach them that. But we don't teach them that, oh, well, being a Christian means that you're wearing this kind of clothes to church. And, and this, that, or the other. There might be good reasons for, for, for doing those sorts of things. But what are we teaching them? Are we teaching them that it is just some sort of outward set of rules that we need to do that will somehow please God if we do them? Are we teaching them that we receive and rejoice in all that God has done and that our only hope is in resting in Him and in what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary? It's not just parents, by the way. I mean, we can be like this with our friends or other people as well, just trying to conform them to what we feel would be helpful. 
And, and if they're doing the outward thing, then we don't really care what the heart's going on, what's going on in the heart. We're just happy that, well, at least he's, you know, he's doing this outward thing that makes me feel a bit more comfortable. Is that what we're teaching? Is that what we're implying? Where are we on this this morning? And if there is something of that spirit within us, either directed to ourselves or to others, will we hear again (coughs) and receive again this morning the gospel in its original purity and simplicity? Christ's message that if we will turn from sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will be saved. If we will trust in Christ, if we will rest in him and in his death on the cross, that that is what is required. Well, we need to conclude now. We've been reminded of this gospel that Paul proclaimed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We've heard things to encourage us in relying on that simple gospel. Knowing that it's from Christ, knowing that it's approved by the apostles, but also knowing that it is the only gospel. There is no other way.